Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting at verse 1, it says, After these things, after these things, after the Lord has been crucified, after the Lord has been resurrected, after the Lord has appeared to his disciples, now things are moving on. Now, the last time we met, we saw how we've broken the Gospel of, of John down into four parts. Put yourself in the place of John wanting people to know and to understand who Jesus Christ is. Remember, the purpose of his gospel is to display Jesus Christ as God. The common Jew believed that Messiah was going to come, but he didn't necessarily believe that Messiah was God. And so John is showing how Messiah has come in Jesus Christ, and he is the Son of God. And so in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 19, John presents his thesis. John is presenting what he wants you to believe. And keep in mind, belief is a current that goes throughout all of the gospel of John. It's essential that not only do we believe in Christ, but we believe in the biblically presented Christ. And so again, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 19, is John's thesis, again, what he wants you to believe. And then in John chapter 1, verses 20 through chapter 20, verse 29, John is writing to prove his thesis. And if you would look at him, he's in essence saying, this is what I believe, and this is why I believe it, and this is why you should believe it. And so John's doing the work of an evangelist, if you will, here, as he's showing us why we should believe what he has presented to us. And then, again, last time we met, we saw John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. This would be John's conclusion. It says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then we have John chapter 21. John chapter 21 would be the epilogue. Epilogue, an epilogue is a short section at the end of a literary work, often dealing with the future of the characters. And really what we're going to be seeing here in chapter 21 is the period of time between when the Lord appeared to his people and now his disciples, and now as they're moving on in ministry, but it's before the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Lord still has some commissions, some commands, some teaching and training to be done before that comes about. And so the Apostle John has stated in his theses that Jesus Christ is God, that he became man, and he died for our sins. Anyone who believes in him will become a child of God through faith in all that God has done. Now in chapter 21, you have the result of a person's life who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a key after these things, you could look at Thomas, because he's obviously, we see he's included in verse 2, as Thomas has come to the realization of who Jesus Christ is. He who was previously a doubter, now is a believer. And then we enter into chapter 21, not only he, but a handful of apostles who are moving forward in what God has called them to do. Now that I believe and have been rewarded with the relationship with Jesus Christ, now it's up to them, what do we do now? 
I mean, just put yourself in their place. They don't have the scriptures as we have. They can't look back on history as we were able to look upon history. I can't even imagine they could fathom what it was going to mean when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And, and now, here we are. What do we do now? Because the thing about it is, is they know they must do something. This is a commonality throughout all of the scriptures. In Revelation chapter 1, very important, it says, Blessed is he, now this is speaking of the book of Revelation, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time are near. And so believing in the Lord, hearing from the Lord, must result in doing for the Lord. And what I mean by for the Lord, that which the Lord has commanded you to do. And so the question needs to be asked, if you're a person of the word, if you're a born-again believer, what has God called you to do? And then the next question that needs to be asked, are you doing it? Are you doing what God has called you to do? Now, I'm not necessarily fulfilling that just because I'm up here. I mean, you got to look through all the aspects of your life. Am I fulfilling the will of God through all that he has given me? Am I honoring the Lord with how he has changed me and who he has recreated me to be? This is something that all Christians must ask ourselves, and we must honestly answer that as well. What we're going to see in chapter 21 over a couple of weeks is nine points. I'm just going to read through them. I'll go through tonight's points individually, so don't worry about writing them all down. But first, we're going to see the assembled church. Secondly, we see the possibility of serving Christ in the energy of the flesh. Thirdly, we see the fruitlessness of such efforts. Fourthly, we see the direction of Christian work by Jesus and the blessing that follows upon obedience to that direction. Fifthly, we'll see Christ's temporal provision for his followers. Sixth, the only acceptable motive for Christian service. Seventh, the value of diversity within the church. Eighthly, we'll see the importance of regular feeding upon the word of God. And then ninthly, the necessity for close, a close personal discipleship for all Christians. We come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but discipleship is all about growing in our faith. It's all about not, we're kind of touching on this in the book of Hebrews in chapter 8, especially when he's saying, you know what, you're still on mother's milk here. You ought to be growing in the meat of the word. And that's what discipleship is all about, about bringing people to fruition in their Christian life. So what we have here in verses 1 and 2 is just really a picture of the assembled church, not the whole church, but we have a gathering together of believers here. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Sea of Tiberias, that's the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias is a town right on the Sea of Galilee. My wife and I, we stayed there when we were in Israel, and it just, the hotel, they probably didn't have the same hotel that we stayed in back in Jesus' day, but the hotel that we were in, it just overlooked the whole Sea of Galilee, and it was kind of cool. Now, I think they, and I probably should have brought the put the picture up there but and I think they did this for the tourists but they had a boat maybe about a hundred yards just moored out in the middle in, uh, of the sea of of Galilee and it was just really a cool picture 
you can imagine Jesus being out there. You can imagine, wow, they went straight across there, and you know that's where they encountered the storms. And on the other side, the Gadarenes, and over there is the the uh, the, the the places where Jesus would would teach his disciples. And it was just kind of an amazing experience. But it was from that city Tiberius, and that's what they're talking about here. And so we have a picture of the assembled church. It doesn't seem like much, but that's okay. The church has never been about numbers, at least not in God's sight. In John chapter 6, you see that there's a bunch of numbers, but when they hear the truths of the Lord, a bunch of people, when they hear the truths from the Lord, they go away. Sooner or later, a lot of those people would be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And so we do have a core group of men here. Notice there's their gathering together. They're there more than likely to support one another. They're more than likely there to come alongside of one another during this time when they're void of understanding. I would imagine they're probably speaking of the things that the Lord had speaking to them. Um, we're going to see it's going to be a commonality throughout the book of Acts as they get into the word for understanding. Very possibly they were doing that. But they had seen the Lord die. They had seen the Lord die. And what happened when the Lord was about to die? They scattered. But now they've seen the resurrected Lord and we see them pulled together. And this, again, was to be something that historically happens throughout all of the church age based upon the resurrected Lord. Because what had happened when the Lord was resurrected and then ascended to heaven? He sent the Holy Spirit. And that being the case, we are commanded, it is a command in the Bible, that we are not to forsake coming to church. As I've said so many times before, you can come to church and you'll be filled, but also part of your purpose in coming into the body of Christ is to fill others as well. Every time I come to the church, I have something to receive, but I also have something to give. Maybe it's, well, for me, it's on the pulpit, but, but in, the, in the fellowship, in the times just sitting together and supporting one another and talking about the things that are going on, maybe it's just enjoying one another. Maybe it's just, see, Christians can have fun too. That's not a sin. And, and maybe it's just that, that fellowship when we're not involved in anything serious, but just the fellowship that we have with one another. The writer of Hebrews states it very clearly, and this is where I get the command, starting in verse 19 of uh, chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holies by the blood of Jesus. So he's speaking of people who are born-again believers. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And so if you go through and you dissect those verses, he's speaking of all the amazing things that God has done for us. He's speaking of our salvation and the details of our salvation. But then verse 25 is the command. And it is a command. It's not a command for salvation. It's a command because of salvation. He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. So back then, people were already forsaking church. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some. But what's the purpose for us coming together? But exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
What's the day? Well, he's speaking of end times. And so we look at what's going on across the world. Today we had another terrorist attack, this time in Spain. I can't remember the numbers. Ten people, 12, something like that died, and over 100 people were injured. And then they also foiled another attack that was supposed to happen today as well. And these things continue to go on, and you wonder what in the world is going on. Well, all these things are birth pangs leading to what we do see in the book of Revelation towards the end times. And so things are happening. It just seems like things are spiraling out of control. Now, we studied the book of Ezekiel. It's been two or three years, and we've done prophecy at the end of the year on New Year's Eve and, and whatnot, and we're looking at these things, and I've just been kind of thinking back when I started doing those things and just seeing how things are increasing, increasing, increasing. Look at the state of our country today. Look how divided it is and what a mess it is. In the past, we heard about, you know, the United States not mentioned what happens to it, but we're thinking we're the United States of America. Well, we're not so united anymore, are we? I mean, never has division existed to the degree that it exists anymore. And so what I'm, I'm, you know, all of these things that are of the world that people may be holding on to, they're slipping through their fingers. And here we're commanded not to forsake the gathering of, the gathering together of the brethren. And then it ends in so much more as you see the day, as you see end times approaching. It's going to be necessary for us to strengthen one another to encourage one another and to remind one another that God said that these things are going to happen and God's going to meet us in the midst of all of those things. And so God's got reason and God's got purpose for his church and it's those who forsake the gathering together of the brethren, they're going to be the ones who are overwhelmed. Two things to look at here. First, who is gathered together and why they are gathered together. Who? Well, we see Peter, and keep in mind, Peter, we'll get into that as we move on in the weeks to come, but Peter's standing there, and Peter's in his failure. Remember what he said? Lord, I'll die for you. Far be it that they come and take, I'll die for you. He thought he was willing to die for Christ, but when he was confronted by a little servant girl, he denied the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's Peter, Peter in his failure. You have Thomas. Thomas, you can kind of see a new believer. He's just come to this fresh awareness of the Lord. We just saw that previous in the previous chapter, verse 26 and on. John, John's the only one of them who saw the crucified Lord upon the cross. And then there's the other four. There's James, Nathaniel, and two others who are unnamed. This brings us to the why. The last time we heard from Nathaniel was in chapter 1, and can't confirm this completely, but there seems to be the same group of people that were present in chapter 1, and now the same group of people that are present in chapter 21. So at the beginning, you had those group of guys as Jesus was just beginning to assemble them, but you see at the end of his gospel... They're there for the most part, and they're still together. Present with the Lord in chapter 1 were Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, unnamed, possibly Thomas, John, and James. Well, in John chapter 18, verse 9, remember what Jesus said? Of those whom you gave me, I had lost none. And so throughout all of that time, some of that pretty turbulent time, Jesus has been able to keep his people together Looking back, Jesus is always able to keep those 
who are his. Your kids are learning about Joseph and in devotions we looked at that time when Joseph was in that cistern that his brothers had thrown him into. He just had gotten his coat of many colors. Dad had given it to him. He was probably pretty high at that time and what's going on? I'm favored of dad. Things are going really well. But then his jealous brothers, they do that and I often wonder if he could hear them talking, hear them talking about killing their own brother. And then they're talking about selling him off and exporting him to Egypt. And then can you imagine when they do just that and he's on his way to Egypt thinking, what in the world is going on here? But God has got plans and purposes as we study the life of Joseph. We see, don't if you could be there, Joseph, all things are going to work together for the good. You don't understand it now. And there's going to be a period of years, and there's going to be harder years. Matter of fact, it's going to seem to get better. Then it's going to even get a lot worse. You're going to find yourself in Egyptian prison. But then you're going to find yourself as the most powerful man in the world. And what I mean by that, Egypt was the most powerful country in the world. There was Pharaoh, and you can make a case for Pharaoh being more powerful than Joseph. But Joseph was second in command, but Joseph's got God. So I consider Joseph to be the most powerful man in the world. So here he is from a cistern to the most powerful man in the world doing the Lord's work. And so here you have small beginnings for the church. You have this group of guys. God was able to keep them together, but you kind of would wonder, Lord, were they really worth keeping together? But then you go home and you look at yourself in the mirror. And God has always kept you. God has always kept you. I mean, if you look at your life, regardless of what has ever gone on in your life, God has kept you for this day. And he's got reasons for you in this day. He who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. And that's what I see in this gathering of guys that we have here and that God's got to work. Jesus has died, but he's resurrected and the church is going to move on. And then you get into the book of Acts, ladies. That's what you'll be studying in small group this year. They're going to be moving on in power. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John would go on to say in his epistle, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. All that the Lord has called to come together, and I look at this as our church. Those whom God has called and have made this their church, they're going to be part of it, and they're going to dig in. And then there's some people who are never really part of the church. You know, you can usually tell the people who aren't going to be very long, they're always on the peripheral. They're never really into the body of Christ. They're never, you know, they, they kind of come and, you know, go. Maybe, maybe they even come every Sunday, but that's just about it. And it's the extent of their service. And they come in and they're out the door really quick. And I've seen people like that all through the existence of our church who, who just haven't entered into the body of Christ here at Ontario. And again, wherever it is that your church is, it is you have to enter into the fabric of the church. And so... I see this gathering together of guys. I see this, <clears throat> excuse me, this, this um, assembled body of Christ. <clears throat> and then verses 2 and 3, second point, we see the possibility of serving Christ in the energy of the flesh. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. 
Because when Peter wasn't with the Lord, he never caught anything. It's kind of almost comical when you think about it. But the question is, what must we do now? What must we do now? And really the question to them is, what must we not do now? Now, he knew, knows he's got to do something, I, I, I would imagine. I, I imagine he's impressed upon, you know, again, I've, I've been a failure, though, in my perceptions of the Lord and the things that the Lord has said. And, and so what's the only thing that I know to do? Unfortunately, it's to go back to the old life. But what did the Apostle Paul say? It would be later on, but we reach forward to that higher calling in Christ Jesus. Christianity is never about backsliding. Actually, Christianity is not even about staying stagnant. We'll get into that in our study in Hebrews uh, in Sundays to come. It's always about moving forward. It's always about growing in your Christian life in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you have, you look at yourself where you were a year ago, and if you're not having increased in your knowledge in Jesus Christ, if you haven't gone into a deeper spirit of of love and and realization of what Christ has done in your life, you're backsliding, plain and simple, because God desires that we be moving forward, entering in deeper into that relationship. And it's not that you need more of Jesus, it's that you need to surrender more of yourself to him. And as we do that, it's then that we'll see growth in our Christian lives. We've got this church at Ephesus that seemed to be... Now, Peter's real easy. He's going fishing. You see, this isn't a good idea, Peter. Church at Ephesus, though, in the book of Revelation, as they're being examined, you'd think they're doing pretty good. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel or the messenger, more than likely to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, this would be the Lord, I know your works. And whenever he says that, I know what you do, and I know what, why you do it. He could tell me, Mike, I saw your bulletin. I know what you do, and I know why you're doing it. I know what your motives are here. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have preserved, persevered, and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. You've got real busy, but you're ignoring your relationship with Christ. And Peter, he's of the mindset now, well, let's just get busy. And as far as fishing, that's only really the thing that I know to do. Jesus had said in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. When it says fit, it means useful. And so, Peter, you're looking back. You're going in the wrong direction. And in actuality, what Peter is doing, he's doing something just to do something without really, he didn't seek the Lord here. Again, he's probably not doing well Uh, emotionally, spiritually, because he's got this conviction upon him. But what do you do? I mean, what do you do when when that's going on? Now, Peter does have the Word of God, and we're going to close with Psalm 40, so there is the ability to understand what to do. And if you can give him advice, you'd say, Peter, don't go fishing. Just wait. Now, 
God's gracious. It's why he's going to meet Peter as he does go fishing. But Peter, just wait on the Lord. Peter, wait on the Lord and his grace. Because what you're going to find out is it's God who is gracious and it's God who is able and you're unable. God proved that to you and all the boasting that you did and that you failed. Christ even told you that you were going to fail. But remember what he said, Peter? He says, and when you return to me, strengthen the brethren. So failure in God's sight is okay. It's not desired, obviously, but it's okay. Jesus knew that Satan wanted to sift him, sift him by wheat, and so Christ prayed for him, and Peter, when you return to me, strengthen the brethren. But Peter's got to go through the process, as all of us have to go through the process. He's got to go through the feelings of disconnect and the feelings of alone and the feelings of the flesh and all of this stuff because we all have to learn our lessons and sometimes our lessons are very difficult to learn. In order to find the zone that God will bless, you must step out of the zone of your comfort. Peter is going back into that zone. And what we're going to see here is the last part of verse 3 is our third point, the fruitlessness of such efforts. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. In John 15, 5, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Well, here's the definition of that. You can do absolutely nothing without Christ. You can have the big building and you can have plenty of events and big crowds and all of that. But what you'd have to ask is, in the midst of all of that stuff, are you still connected to the vine? Are, are you still able to maintain personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You can get involved. We can all get involved in life and everything that's involved in that. Are you still connected with the vine? Because if you're not connected with the vine then you're not doing anything of any spiritual good or of any lasting good in the kingdom of God. You have to be connected to the vine. You have to be connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's as we are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ and all that God has called us to do and is necessary to do in our lives, jobs, family, and all of that stuff, it's then that we are going to see fruit born. Fourthly, we see the direction that Jesus sets for the believer. Even when Peter has gone off in a wrong direction, Christ enters in and is going to direct him back in the way that he should go. And again, it, it grieves me when I hear people, I don't know what to do. I don't know what direction to go. I feel God has called me to something great, but I just don't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't know that God had called me to be a pastor. And, but the one thing I did know is, is that I just needed to be prepared. So I just move forward in that manner. And again, it's just about, being, about, about moving forward and being directed by God. HL here, he's a pilot. What happens when you're in an airplane and you're not moving forward? You're going down. That's just the, natu the nature of aerodynamics, as I understand it. And, uh, and it's the same thing in your Christian life. You've got to be pushing forward. You've got to get that air under your wings. And as you're doing that, then God is going to direct you. Well, at least Peter was moving here. And he was moving in the wrong direction, but we're about to see the directing, the directing of the Lord. It's at a time when they weren't seeking Jesus, but it's always those times when we don't seek the Lord that he seeks us out. He seeks us out, and he'll find us even in the midst of our toil and our failure. Look at verses 4 through 11. 
But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered him, No. And, and then he said, to, I, the emphasis is mine. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw the fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you had just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus asked the question, verse 5, Children, have you any food? He knew the answer. It's a rhetorical question. He didn't need them to answer, but when the Lord asks questions, see, you've got God. God's all-knowing, so there's never anything that God doesn't know. I mean, kind of wrap your mind around that. There is nothing, nothing hidden from him, nothing that he can't understand. There is nothing that God doesn't know. So when God asks a question, it isn't for his understanding, and then that is only one other way to go with that. It's for our understanding. Genesis 3, 9, Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? It's not like God's walking through the garden saying, I've lost Adam. He knew exactly where Adam was. He wanted Adam to consider where he was hiding in the bushes in his shame as he was. Genesis 3.11, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? He knew very well that he's experiencing that for himself, but he's wanting him to consider that. And then he asked him, Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? He knew very well that he did. Genesis 3.13, And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, giving him an excuse, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And it's not God's going, What are we going to do? You know, who, who are we going to send? No, he, he's, he's speaking this to Isaiah. He's wanting Isaiah to consider this. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And even in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus knew very well the answer to this question, but he asked his apostles, his disciples, who do you say that I am? It was so that they would think it through, that they would consider who the one who stood before him asking that question was. These questions are asked in order for man to cease from ignoring a situation. Paraphrasing Jesus' question to the disciples as they're out there, fishing all night and haven't caught anything, have you? That they would consider, is this really what we're supposed to be doing? If we continue doing this, and we do this for a living, we're going to starve to death. And so, have you ever been involved in something that you just thought was a slam dunk and just became so unfruitful? And it's as if God was saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Is that what I called you to do? Is that where I called you to go? 
gone to a very dry place and it just seemed in the flesh it just seemed like such a great thing to do and seemed like it had such great potential seemed like it was such a good idea but Jesus is in essence asking you fishing all night haven't caught anything have you no no Lord we haven't caught a thing they're fishing according to their own understanding next we see the remedy in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. We'll look at verse 6. <clears throat> and then he said to them, so we asked him the question, no, we haven't caught anything, so they're having to admit that. But then he said to them, he doesn't just leave them in despair, cast the nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Do you know why Jesus said to cast the nets on the right side of the boat? There's a meaning, a deep meaning that is hidden here. Why did Jesus say cast the net on the right side of the boat? Because that's where the fish were. It's very simple, but it's very direct. And the best thing that they could possibly do is cast their nets on the right side of the boat. And what I mean by that is they were obedient to what God had called them to do. They were submitted to the Lord. And so they do what he has called them to do, and then you see the fruit of the ministry. And so really what you need to see is we've got a gathering together of the church. They've got a good idea, and they go off in a bad way. And as they're out there doing it, so again, they're out there. Now, what did Jesus call them to be? Fishers of men. So let's bring it into that arena. And there's just simply no fruit from their ministry. And it's like, keep throwing nets, nothing ever comes in here. Well, you're not doing it under the direction and the leading of the Lord. And so as they do it under the direction and the leading of the Lord, it's then that they're seeing the fruit of ministry. So he asks a question then he directs now in response to their obedience they're blessed with an abundance are you obedient to the lord or are you submitted to the lord there's a big difference there's a lot of christians who who aren't either but might be obedient but aren't really submitted obedience if i called you to go outside and dig a ditch I don't want to go outside and dig a ditch. All right, where's the shovel? I'll go out and dig your stupid ditch. And you go out there and you dig my stupid ditch. And, you know, there it is. And you did it exactly how I said it. You came in, threw the shovel down. I've been obedient to you. The ditch is there. It's dug. But then there's the person who submitted to leadership. Go out and dig the ditch. In their mind, they don't want to go and dig a ditch. I mean, who wants to dig a ditch? But you know what? That's what I've been called to do. That's what I've been commanded to do. I'm going to go dig a ditch with all of my heart. And I'm going to do it with a good attitude. And maybe somewhere in the midst of that, there's going to be the work of ministry. And so you can be obedient, but you can be obedient without your heart. But when you're submitted to something, you're all in. You're all in. Are you all in to what God has called you to do and who God has called you to be? Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. Again, the Bible, we were looking at something on... Um, Wednesday morning in the men's study that we do and uh, we just saw some detail that I can't even remember what it is and here they numbered the fish 
153, and John thought it important enough to put it into the gospel. I mean, if I was just reading this and said they had a whole bunch of fish, that would have been sufficient, but I just love the detail that exists. I mean, if somebody is making something up, would he come up with a number, or would he just kind of be abstract about it? Came up with an exact number. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. And so we just bring them to Christ. We catch them, he cleans them, the saying goes. How does all of this come together? You must come to the same conclusion that the apostle John did. Remember, the one who refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And again, I believe that's because he saw the Lord upon the cross. He just comes, it's, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And, and really what he's saying, he's just not acknowledging that it's Jesus. He's acknowledging who Jesus is. It's the, this is the one whom we are to be submitted to. This is the one to whom we are to receive our orders from. What should they have been doing? Well, let's go ahead and turn over to Psalm 40, and we'll close there. Psalm 40, just the first three verses. This is a psalm of David. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. Do you wait on the Lord? And maybe you say, yes, do you wait patiently on the Lord? Because you can just abide time, but do you wait patiently on the Lord? Uh, Joseph, he had to wait for, I I don't remember exactly, but it was like 12, 13 years. Are, Are you able to do that? And to be in the will of God and, and to, you know, just think of how long that is. Think of what you were doing 12, 13 years ago. To be able to wait that time, to put that time in. But David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet on a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Notice in verses 1 through 3, the proportion of things that man does versus what God does here. Man's part is in verse 1, wait. It's just simply to wait. When you don't know, when you have no direction, no instruction from the Lord, wait. Now our wait is to be an active wait. We are to be praying without ceasing. We are to be consuming his word and not forsaking the gathering together of the brethren. We are to have our ears sharpened for the Holy Spirit. We're not going to go there, but in Acts chapter 13, it's where the Apostle Paul received his calling. He was serving in the local church at Antioch. He was there, he was involved in ministry, and had fellowship with other guys, and it was in the midst of that that the Holy Spirit said, separate to me, Paul and Barnabas. In actuality, what it was saying, the Holy Spirit was saying, I'm taking these guys and I'm sending them out in the mission field, and I'm going to use them to turn the world upside down. Now, I don't think he was taking turn the world upside down classes. He was just doing what he knew to do. And as he was waiting on the Lord, the Lord answered. And so we see man's part, verse 1, is to wait. But then we see these three verses, God's part in the matter. He inclined himself to us. He reminded him of his presence. God has told us that I will never leave you or forsake you. He's there in the hard times, he's there in the good times, but he's there in the midst of the waiting as well. Secondly, he hears our cry. 
And the idea here is, is answered prayer. That's one of the things I left out about the Apostle Paul in Acts 13. What were they doing? They were also fasting and praying. And so when God hears our prayers, the idea is he hears them for the purpose of answering them. You may not always like the answer, but as long as he's answering, that's all we really care about. Verse 3, he takes us out of the dumps. He delivers us from the effects of sin. Now, if it was me, I'd be of the mindset, you know what? You dug yourself into that pit. You need to stay in the pit for a while. It's a good thing I'm not God. But the Lord, the Lord, how many times has he delivered you from your own sin? The answer is easy every time. How many times will he deliver us from our sin? The answer is every single time, if you're a born-again believer. He sets us on solid ground. The idea is he gives us strength for the day. He gives me strength for today, and I'm well confident he's going to give me strength for tomorrow. Fifthly, he establishes our steps. He blesses our obedience to him, but the idea is in our Christian life or in our Christian walk, he sets the direction to where my feet are planted, and a lot of times he doesn't show me the spot to plant the next feet until I'm ready to take that step. And then lastly, and that's what we're going to see in the apostles down the road, he gives us a new song. A new song, the expression of the heart that sings out because of a fresh awareness of the grace of God to understand that God is still with me, to understand that God still cares for me, to understand that God still has a purpose and a plan for me. And again, you look at Peter in that defeated state, Christ, as we know, we've read this before, Christ is going to meet him in a very personal way. And Peter had to imagine that it's all over. I messed the whole thing up. God still got a plan for his life. We look back historically and biblically, we see what God did through Peter's life. We look at the book of Acts and use this man in a mighty way to display his grace, but also to display his power and the power of his word. Father, once again, we just thank you, the God, that you have given us your word, that, Father, you have broken it down for us, that you have given us understanding. I thank you, Father, that you have given us an ear to hear. But, Lord, I also pray that you would give us a mind to do. And so, Father, we just lift up the section of scripture that you have given us tonight. And I pray, Father, that we would be people who wait when we've been called to wait. But, Father, pray that we would never stay static, that our work truly would be, our waiting would truly be that which is beneficial, Father, not only to our future, but the future of whom you have called us to minister to. And so, Father, I pray that we would be people who feed your sheep, who tend them, and, Lord, are invested in your kingdom. That we would not forsake the gathering together of the brethren, but, Lord, we would be counted well faithful in all that you have called us to do. Lord, I pray for those who have come out tonight that you would bless them and go before them and bring us home safely and set us about the remainder of the week. I pray for Sal, Lord, as he's ministering to his hurting family, that you would bless him, give him the words to speak. I pray for Nora's service on Saturday, Father, that you would be glorified through it. I pray, Father, for all that you have given our church to do, that, Father, we would shine very brightly for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? So again, Sal's mother's funerals tomorrow. Keep it up in prayer tomorrow at 10 o'clock. And also, uh, Norris is here at our church. I'll be doing the services at 11 on Saturday. Keep it up in prayer. Um, Norris got unsaved family members and some people who are 
going in some pretty hard directions upon her death and all. And so just pray that the Lord would do a great work that day and do a great work within her family as well. God bless you guys.